Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray, praise you that every, every word that has been read this morning is true. All of the truths that we have sung, they are right. They have been proven by your wonderful record of faithfulness to us. And we thank you, Father, that we are able to sing with great confidence. That we are able to stand on every promise of your word. And it's with that confidence now, Father, that we open our our Bibles, we read from them, and we wait expectantly for you to reveal yourself in your word. We pray that you'll do so. Pray, Father, that you would grant us greater insight into the word, into the world around us, into our own hearts, that you would grant us greater affection for Jesus, greater desire to live for you greater determination to stand on every promise of your word. We ask for these things in the name of our great brother and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. The characteristics that tend to move someone to pursue supreme power also happen to be the same characteristics that that should disqualify someone from supreme power. And so for the most part, the people ruling the world are the last people that you would want to do so. You think about the kinds of people who have supreme authority across the globe today you think about the fact that they, they steer the world economy, they steer the world's legislatures and courts, and they have control of the world's armies, many of them with nuclear capabilities. It can be truly disturbing. And this is the environment in which we have been called to a mission to spread a countercultural message of self-denial and following Christ. And that's, that's a mission which, if we're faithful to it, will draw upon us the unwanted and negative attention of those very people who have power in this world. When we think about that, it can be a bit overwhelming. At times we can be so paralyzed by what we see around us and by what we see coming down from those earthly powers that we can forget about the mission altogether. But think about, think about how much of human history has shown God's people existing under the authority of pagans who hate God. I don't have time to go through an exhaustive history of the world in that regard, but let me just hit a few of the highlights. If we just open up our Bibles to the Old Testament, we see 400 years in Egypt under the Pharaohs, 300 years or so under the foreign oppressors of the Judges period. There were all of those evil kings in Judah and Israel after the death of Solomon. 
We have the, the exile period, the post-exilic period, up to the time of Jesus, under the Assyrians, the, the Babylonians, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. It isn't until you get to Constantine that the church enjoys something like a sympathetic world power. And even with Constantine, many would argue that under his leadership, the way was paved for the Catholic Church to adulterate the gospel for a thousand years, which led to the suffering of the true church. I'll stop there, but we could keep going all the way up to today. The vast majority of history has shown God's people under the authority of ungodly supreme powers. And yet, not one word of all God's good promises have failed. How is this possible? How is that possible? It's possible because there are there are two truths that run side by side like train tracks through all of history. And the first is that these rulers in the world, they are supreme powers doing what they most want to do to accomplish their ends. That is absolutely true. Alongside of it, it is also true that they are supreme pawns doing what God most wants to be done to accomplish His ends. And throughout history, God has accomplished His plan and frustrated their ends, not in spite of what they do, but through and because of what they do. And the the book of Esther and chapter 5 in particular demonstrate all of this. You'll you'll remember that the number one and number two authorities in the kingdom of Persia were King Ahasuerus and Haman. Ahasuerus the pliable and Haman the Jew-hater. Back in chapter 3, Haman persuaded Ahasuerus to decree the annihilation of all of God's people. So in chapter 4, Mordecai persuaded Esther to act on behalf of her people. And we find then Esther calling on all the Jews in Susa to fast in anticipation of her approach to the king. This supreme power who holds not only her life, but the lives of all God's people in her hands. And these these two rulers, they have immense power. They are supreme. Ahasuerus because of his throne and Haman because of his place of trust beside the pliable Ahasuerus. They are supreme rulers. But providence moves these supreme rulers into position to accomplish his will for his people. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He steers it wherever He will. That's precisely what happens in this chapter, Esther chapter 5, with the number one and number two authorities in all of the world at the time. If we're students of the Word and we believe what the Bible says about God and ourselves and the world around us, we need not fear what's, what's happening among the nations and among these supreme powers. They are but supreme pawns in God's hands accomplishing His good, our good and His glory. And our role in the midst of all of that is to pray and trust God and get busy about the mission. So now if you found your place in Esther chapter 5, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word. We'll read the first two verses of this chapter. Esther chapter 5, 
verses 1 and 2. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. You may be seated. Now, let's, let's begin by just considering that God moves some powers to favor His people. God moves some powers to favor His people. Esther, you'll, you'll remember back in chapter 4, her main concern in approaching Ahasuerus is that there is one thing that happens when somebody does this, and that is they get executed. You do not go to the king uninvited. And that's exactly what she's, she's about to do here. And yet she knows that her people are in danger, and so she, she prays and she trusts God, and she goes in to wait and see what happens. She stands in the inner court. The king is sitting where he can see her. And he sees her, and the text of verse 2 says that she won favor in his sight. She's invited in, and that's an, that's an enormous hurdle that's overcome. She's not going to be killed for entering uninvited. She's won favor in his sight. We've had occasion in previous chapters to consider that language, that language of, of winning favor in the sight of these authorities. If, if we pay close attention to the Bible, we know that It is God who gives favor to His people in the eyes of those who have power. God gave Joseph favor in Potiphar's eyes and in the eyes of the prison keeper and later with Pharaoh. God gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs and with Nebuchadnezzar and with Darius. God gave Nehemiah favor with Artaxerxes, who was the son of this Ahasuerus. God moves powers to give favor to His people. And God does that not just to be nice, but to advance His own plan for His people. Look at verse 3. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. See, Ahasuerus is moved not only to favor Esther, but to make this outrageous offer. Now, we ought we, we not take this offer too literally. Herod said this same thing to Herodias' daughter in Mark chapter 6 in the New Testament. This, this whole half my kingdom thing was an ancient idiom. It wasn't taken literally. What it, what it means is, I'm in a really good mood and I'm disposed to be very generous to you. And when we think about the context of this situation, we think about that what normally happens to someone who has just done what Esther's done, and that is she's gone to the king uninvited. She should be killed. We think that that's what should be happening to her. She should be killed. But now he is saying to her, look, I'm favorably disposed to you. Not only am I not going to kill you, but name your favor and I'll do it. We see that, that he has been moved to extraordinary favor He's making an outrageous offer. And so, green light for Operation Save the Jews. And Esther sees the opening here and she takes it 
Look at verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and, and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. If you think back to chapter 1, this is, this is somewhat interesting. Remember back in chapter 1, the whole issue with Vashti? What was the problem with Vashti? Vashti wouldn't do what she was told. And so, under the counsel of the king's wise men, the king sent out a decree to all of Persia saying, Every man will be master in his own house. Look, all men of Persia, women aren't going to tell us what to do. But, but Ahasuerus, his heart has been so turned here that he says to Esther, whatever you want, just, you just name it, and I'm going to do it for you. And when she makes her request, he, he more literally says in the original text, fetch Haman so that we could do the word of Esther. She wants them to come to a feast. This woman wants him, them to come to a feast. And so the number one and the number two authorities in all the world come to that feast. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I've found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. In other words, let's do this whole thing again tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what I want. And a lot has been made by commentators over the years about why Esther does this, why she asks for a second feast. And there are, there are a couple of explanations for that, one human explanation and one divine the human explanation is simply that Esther's just she's just following ancient Near Eastern custom. This is just ha- how you handled this kind of thing. You begin with with a small favor and you work your way slowly, one concession at a time, to the to the real issue. And you'll you'll notice that Ahasuerus doesn't act put out by this. He he, he doesn't say anything like, uh, um, "How long are you going to string me along here? Let's get to it." No, he knows that this is just how how things are done. He's playing the game, so he asks, "Okay." When are we going to do this? She says, tomorrow. And he's fine with that because this is customary. Now, that's, that's the human explanation. The divine explanation is that this request for Ahasuerus and Haman to come to a second feast the next day allows for the next part of the story in the rest of chapter 5 to take place, which sets the stage for Haman's demise. God has moved Ahasuerus to favor Esther in such a way that God's enemies are set up for judgment and God's people are set up for salvation. God does this over and over throughout salvation history. When God gave Joseph favor with all of those rulers in Egypt and especially with Pharaoh, it wasn't simply that God was trying to help Joseph fill the emotional void left by his brother's betrayal, Right? I mean, there was something much bigger there. God was saving His people from starvation through Joseph. That's why He gave Joseph favor. And when God gave Daniel favor with the rulers of Babylon and Persia, He wasn't just doing that to extend Daniel's life, but He was doing that to show all of God's people 
that, hey, look, when, when you're in captivity, I'm still God. I'm still all-powerful. I'm still the only one who's worthy of worship. And when you're in chains, I'm still in charge. I'm still moving history for your good. That's what God was doing as He was giving Daniel favor. God moves earthly powers to favor His people to accomplish their good. Not just to give them a, a temporary break, but to further His own plans, His own promises to bring their salvation. Now God does that, moves powers to, to give, give His people favor. He also moves some powers to despise His people. God moves some powers to despise His people. And that's what we really struggle with, isn't it? We're good with the first part. We love it when He, when he moves powers to give us favor. It's that second part that really stinks. God does do it. He moves earthly powers to despise His people. It is incontrovertible. Okay. Look at Esther chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, before we talk about that directly, let's recognize that we have two scenes in this chapter, and they parallel one another, okay? So the first scene began with, with Esther approaching the king. This second scene begins with Haman leaving the king. The first one we saw Esther, we saw the king, he sees Esther standing and he's moved to favor for her and now Haman sees Mordecai sitting and he's moved to rage. So there's all kinds of these parallels between these these two scenes. Now remember that Haman He's already dealt with Mordecai quite definitively back in chapter 3. He sees this same kind of behavior in Mordecai. Everybody worships Haman. They fall down and they pay homage to him. Mordecai doesn't. So what did, what did Haman do back in chapter 3? He persuaded the king to send out this decree. Hey, let's, not, let's, let's kill all the Jews. This would be a good idea for you, King Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, the pliable, says, okay, sounds good to me. And so Haman has already dealt with Mordecai. I mean, brought, brought revenge against him like, like no one could conceive of. Hey, Mordecai, I, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill all your people on the planet. That's the kind of revenge he's already gotten. And so you would think that with that schedule, this, this, this eradication of all, of all Mordecai's people, it's said, it's on the calendar, the 13th day of the 12th month. You would think that Haman would smile as he walks past Mordecai. That he would enjoy every minute of those months ticking down the days until the 13th day of the 12th month. He'd smile every day. Hey, Mordecai, your day's coming. I have gotten revenge against you like nobody in history has ever gotten revenge on somebody. But there is a finger pushing on Haman. And it's a divine finger. It is, it's the same finger that, that pushed on Pharaoh's heart and hardened it in the face of plague after plague after plague in Egypt. And it's the same finger that stirred up the Canaanites to come against the Israelites, even though they knew what had happened to the Egyptians. 
It's the same finger that moved those who heard the gospel of the kingdom from Jesus' own mouth to then say, His blood be upon us and upon our children. God does often accomplish His plan by moving powers to favor His people, but perhaps more often He accomplishes His will by moving powers to despise His people, including and especially Jesus and His church. In Esther, in the law, prophets, the gospels, in Acts, evil men despise God's people and they become the unwitting means by which God accomplished His mission to save those same people. Earlier we saw the king's favor moved him to, to make an outrageous offer. Well, now Haman's rage moves him to make an outrageous complaint. Look, look at verse 10 and following. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he'd advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the queen, with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. So he gathers all, all of his close, his close friends, his wife says, Look, I've got everything as the number two authority in all the world. He's obscenely wealthy. We'll find later in Esther, he's got ten sons. And in that culture, the, num- the number of sons, that was the measure of a man. The king adores him, and, and it's highlighted in the text here that, that he's an insider even with the queen. There's one person on the entire planet that's invited by the queen to a feast with her and the king. It's Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. It's already happened once, and now she's invited him again. Haman has it all. He has it all. And that makes verse 13 all the more striking. Look at verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see, that's it. The divine finger pressing, pressing on his, on his heart. His heart is a stream of water in the hands of Yahweh. He's turning it wherever he wishes. God has made it so that, in a sense, Mordecai reigns over Haman, and he can't stand it. There's a great irony that God is nowhere explicitly mentioned in this book. The most silent, the most invisible figure in this narrative is the most active and in control. And now, just as Esther made a request in response to that outrageous offer of the king. Now Haman's wife and friends make a suggestion in response to Haman's outrageous complaint. Verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. You see how the pliability of Ahasuerus, this is just a foregone conclusion among these people. Just build a gallows and tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. The original language is, is, a, is a bit more striking. It, it, it more literally says, 
tell the king, and he'll hang Mordecai on it. I mean, Ahasuerus is predictably pliable. Everybody's counting on it. The irony is, so also is Haman pliable. Is just as Ahasuerus has rushed to do what the wise men told him in chapter 1 and what the young men told him in chapter 2 and what Haman told him in chapter 3 and what Esther has now told him in chapter 5, so now Haman rushes to do what his wife and friends tell him here. And in each of these cases, the counsel given to these supreme rulers just happens to be what furthers God's designs for His people. See, that divine finger, it's not only pressing on Haman, and it's not only pressing upon Ahasuerus, but it's pressing on their counselors. The divine finger, it's pressing on Haman's wife and friends. These same voices that, that, that say here, look, just build a gallows. Just build a gallows and have them hanged and, and go to the feast. It's going to be great. They're the same voices that at the end of chapter 6 are going to say to Haman, yeah, you're doomed. The same ones are going to say that. And they have unwittingly just advised Haman to build the gallows upon which he will be hanged. And he has just said, great idea, great idea. I'll build those gallows. And he builds them. Now, who is in control? Is Haman in control? His wife and friends, are they in control? They're all doing exactly what they want. But who is in control? Who's accomplishing their will? It is God. The invisible, almighty, sovereign God. And so here, it, it certainly it, it looks like things are just getting worse for Mordecai. I mean, Haman's angrier than he was before. He's built a gallows to hang Mordecai on immediately. There's no waiting for the 13th day of the 12th month. He's going to die tomorrow. But God has brought this about for the good of His people. And as we've we've been noting this morning, this has been happening throughout salvation history. But the fact that it's been happening throughout salvation history doesn't mean that it's pleasant, right? There is, there is genuine suffering as we wait for the Lord to bring that salvation. When God moves an earthly power to despise His people, it brings real suffering. The make bricks without straw period prior to the exodus that was real suffering. And the persecution of the early and modern church that causes the spread of the gospel, that's actually painful. Paul calls it, Paul, Paul calls it sharing in Christ's sufferings, which reminds us that Gethsemane and Christ's beatings and the crown of thorns, the nails, all of that was real suffering. But each and every time, each and every time, that God moves a, a supreme power to despise His people, we find that He's setting the stage for the revelation of His power and glory in such magnificent ways that the suffering is more than worth it. Every time. It, it's just magnificent. I mean, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it led to such wonders that the, the, the whole exodus became the preeminent metaphor for salvation in the Old Testament. They saw, that Exodus generation, they saw and experienced God in ways that they never would have had God moved Pharaoh to be a nice guy. 
and then if we if we think about the New Testament, we 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 could find examples all over the place. But let's let's think just about the New Testament. A couple of things: God moving Saul to persecute the church. That was a real suffering that happened. That preceded God saving a Paul. That led to the writing of much of the New Testament that we and and the church throughout the ages has cherished. The hatred of the scribes and the Pharisees and Herod and Pilate. The real suffering that led to a resurrection and ascension. And so this, this, this mindset of there is suffering now and it's real, but it leads to leads to joy and glory. You know, that even was on Jesus' mind as he approached his suffering. As the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And that's, that's something to keep in mind, right? I mean, th- those times where, where God moves our enemies to despise us, they're setting the stage for our most intimate times of fellowship with him. The most magnificent displays of His power in us and around us. Now listen, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, and I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to put anything on anybody else. I'm willing to make bricks without straw for a time in order to see the Red Sea parted. I'm willing, and I'm willing to be hated by the world in order to hear the trumpet blast sound and to see Jesus coming on the clouds in His glory. God does move some powers to favor His people. More often, it seems, He moves earthly powers to despise His people. And it leads to glory. In all of these things, no no matter how God is, is putting His finger on hearts and moving them around, there are two common denominators in all of these things. Two common denominators. And the first is that God controls all earthly powers. God controls all earthly powers. You might write down Acts 17, 26. Acts 17, 26. There Paul says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. There is a lot that Paul assumes about the sovereign hand of God moving nations here. God not only created all nations, He determined when they would be, and He determined where they would be. Think about what that means. He determined where they would be. He determined what their boundaries would be. If a nation was going to get bigger, that means God decided that they would take from someone else. If God decided that a nation would grow smaller, that means that He determined another nation would take from them. He also determined when they would be. When they would be, that means that God determined the rise and the fall of nations. And the how and the when that they would be all all work out for the good of God's people. If you read the book of Daniel in one sitting, you see this quite clearly. God moves the nations. He does this through moving the hearts of those ruling those nations, which, which lead, leads us again back to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
So if you, if you read the Bible, you can arrive at no other conclusion than that God controls the history of the world and he does so largely by moving the hearts of kings, rulers, presidents, and powers. You know what I've thought as I've, as I've, as I've come across accounts in the news here and there about, about the second impeachment of Donald Trump and, and, and other power plays taking place, not just on the national stage, but, but the world stage? I've been thinking God is moving, moving pieces, moving pieces, moving pieces. The, the divine fingers pressing hearts so that what they most want to do is what he most wants done. Now, does that mean that Ahasuerus wasn't free? That he wasn't making real choices? Does that mean that... that that Haman was just a robot? Was Pharaoh just an involuntary puppet? Or Herod, Pilate, Saul, all, all the way up to the powers of our modern day? Ha- have they all just been automatons? The answer to all those questions is no. All of them throughout history and even today, they do what they most want to do. And that's the, that's the true definition of freedom. When, when I do what I most want to do, I am free. Ahasuerus invited Esther in because he wanted to. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. Neither one of them acted against their will. Neither one of them were coerced. When the heart does what it wants, it's making a real choice. And that's why when we reject the Lord Jesus Christ while we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're making a real choice. We're doing it because that's what we most want to do. And in our regeneration by the Holy Spirit, when our eyes have been awakened to see the beauty of Christ and we repent and trust in Him, we do so not by coercion of the will, but but in accordance with our will. We are doing what we most want to do. God has acted on our hearts so that we most want Him. And similarly, when earthly power favors God's people or despises God's people, it does so because it is what it most wants to do. It's the, it's, it is that power's deepest desire. But God has moved the heart of that power to that place. They are responsible. God is glorified. Perhaps it's a mystery. It's what the Bible teaches. And you and I can take comfort in it. Whether they favor us or despise us, God controls all earthly powers controls all earthly powers. That's common denominator one, number one in in all of God's dealings with earthly powers. Second common denominator is that God keeps all His eternal promises. Keeps all His eternal promises. You might write down Joshua 21, verses 44 and 45. Joshua 21, verses 44 and 45, which is recorded just after God brought the people into the promised land. And there we read this. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And now along along the way of of salvation history, up to the time that that was written, God had moved some powers to favor His people. He had moved other powers to despise His people. Through it all, 
He was using those powers to accomplish His promises. Earthly powers are among the means that God uses to accomplish His ends, His own glory and the salvation of His people. Now, that passage that I just read in, in Joshua 21, that, that, that's recorded relatively early in the history of God's people. That's, that's early in the Bible. That's right, that's right here. It's pretty early. All of this is left. That's so early. Why would that be so early in the Bible? It's so that every time in the future when God's people were tempted to doubt, they could be reminded, none of God's promises fall to the ground unfulfilled. None of them. Over and over, He keeps His promises. And you and I, you and I, we have the rest of the Bible testifying to that truth. We have, we have the fulfillment, though, not in the form of shadows, but in the substance itself. We've seen how all God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if we think back to the very beginning, that, that we have been plagued by these enemies of sin and death and the devil, plagued from the very beginning, so that we and everyone on the planet, we have all since the very beginning needed to be rescued from sin and death and the enemy, the devil, and God promised that rescue. He promised it back in Genesis 3.15. And on top of that, Jesus, I'm sorry, God promised that, that He would gather a people to Himself. He'd gather a people to Himself, that He would give them a, an eternal homeland, and in that homeland they would enjoy the reign of an eternal king. Jesus Christ, we find in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is God's yes to all those promises. So Jesus Christ comes in the incarnation and He defeats all of those enemies. He earns this perfect record of righteousness that you and I never could. And He completely pays the debt of our sin by dying for it on the cross. He's raised from the dead so that everyone who repents and trusts in Him is freed from their sin and clothed, clothed, clothed in His righteousness. Enemies defeated. Those whom He redeems, those whom He redeems, He calls into one holy nation, the church. That great homeland that He's promised, it awaits in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead. And in that day, He will reign visibly for all eternity. The fulfillment of all God's promises, the fulfillment of all God's promises were inaugurated in Jesus' first coming. The fulfillment of all God's promises will be consummated in Jesus' second coming. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 and beyond, God keeps His promises. And all these things have been written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. So what should all of this say to us in days of turmoil when it may appear that earthly powers are moved to despise us more than to favor us? What, what should we say? What should we do? How should we live? Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, verse 24. We should follow the lead of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. The powers 
that be in Jerusalem at the time had been moved to despise the church and had commanded the church under pain of death to be silent about the Lord Jesus Christ. No more preaching the gospel, they said. Let's consider how they responded. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, did you see the beginning of that prayer, how they began that prayer? Sovereign Lord. They recognized that God was in control. And they recognized in that prayer that everything that had happened leading up to the cross and in all of the, event, the events surrounding the cross, including the actions of sinful men to, to crucify Jesus Christ, all of that came by God's sovereign hand. And they prayed, Lord, continue to do that sovereign work even now. Continue to do that sovereign work through us. They prayed and they trusted God and they got to work. And likewise, we should do three things. We should do three things. We should pray, trust God, and get busy on the mission. Not, not the three things that we tend to do just naturally when we see, when we see earthly powers move to despise us, those, those three things that come so naturally to us. Fret and complain and freeze. Don't do that. Do, do what this early church did. D- did what, do what Esther did. Do what Esther did. Pray. Trust the Lord. Get busy. Pray. Pray. Lord, sovereign Lord, I see the crazy things around me, but I know that you're in control. You've strategically placed me to to do your work, and I accept the sacred privilege of participating with you in that. Please continue to do your thing and empower me to do what you've called me to do. So pray, first of all, pray. Second, trust God. Trust God. Keep in mind, keep in mind two things. The who and the what. Keep in mind the who and the what. When you know the who and the what, the how doesn't matter. The who is an almighty God who loves us. That's the who. He's running the show. The what is an eternity of us enjoying Him. That's where we're headed. The who and the what, we know those things. The how, how He gets us from where we are now to the what, doesn't really matter. It's never mattered. In fact, for for me, I don't want to know the how. It's going to spoil it. I know the who, I know the what. He can be trusted. So pray, trust Him, and three, get busy. 
We still have a mission. If you didn't get your, your booklet for the Pray and Read initiative last week, this is a great place to start. It's a great place to start. It is frequently the case that in confusion of, of days like we live in right now, that, that it could be difficult to know where to start. Just don't even know what to do. Well, this Pray and Read initiative that we started last week, this is a great place to start. If you don't know what the Pray and Read initiative is, go out after this service and grab a booklet off of the, the old coffee table out here. Pray and Read initiative is simply this. We're asking all of our people to pray for the next month for one person whom God would use us to take the gospel to. Pray. We're praying for that person, that God would prepare us, that God would prepare that person to share the gospel with them. Pray and read. At the end of that 30 days, we're going to approach that person and ask them to read a book of the Bible with us, likely Mark. Mark is the best one probably for this kind of thing. We're going to pray. We're going to read the Bible with them, and we're going to see what our sovereign, powerful God does. What an amazing thing might happen if 140 people prayed for 30 days for another 140 people who don't know the Lord and then read God's Word with them and let, let the power of God's Word do its thing in the life of those unconverted hearts. What might happen? Why don't we see? Why don't we pray? Why don't we trust God? Why don't we get busy? God is in control. So let's seek Him. Let us trust Him. Let us be faithful. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign Lord, we recognize that you are the God of the universe who has moved all of history, that you have brought about all of the events necessary, including the, the deeds of sinful men that led to the crucifixion of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You raised him from the dead. You moved the powers of the earth to scatter the, the church so that the gospel spread faster than it might have otherwise. We recognize you're that God. We recognize that you still move the hearts of kings. And you're doing it even now. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that and that you would empower us to do what you've called us to do, to engage in the mission, to, to pray fervently, to trust you based upon your proven character and your promises. And empower us, Father. To, to see how we've been strategically pl placed, to avail ourselves of the sacred privilege of participating with you, and then to do the work. Pray that you would do these things in us for your glory, for our good. We pray in Jesus' name.